For the last six months, we've been working through the books of First and Second Samuel, and uh, and today we're entering into the last section of this book, the last four chapters, which contain a series of six different stories that are actually chronologically out of out of order. Um, they appear to have occurred at various times throughout David's life, um, and you know I keep thinking that. That these story, this preaching is going to get easier. If you've been here for the last month or so, it just keeps getting harder to preach on these passages, and 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 today is perhaps the hardest that I've had in this entire series. Um, while these six stories are chronologically out of order, we're just going to look at one of them today. Um, while they're out of order, they're placed here by the author in order to reinforce certain themes to make some theological points to fix our attention on things that are really important for us to remember. So in our passage, there has, um, there's been a drought, and this drought has been going on for about three years. It's a drought and a famine, and it happened during David's reign. Now, if we had a drought today, most of us would probably be looking at the, at, at the weather channel and we would see very high-tech graphs and charts and models, and we would hear somebody trying to explain to, this, to us that this is clear and decisive confirmation of global warming, that this is the result of, of, our carbon, of, of human beings' carbon footprint. And if you got tired of hearing that, you, some of you might turn to one of the religious channels, and you might hear somebody say that this drought, this famine, is the result of the current political administration, and they would probably want to sell you a $25 fully anointed famine protection prayer rug. <laughs> but David doesn't have a TV. Doesn't have a TV. Instead, he goes to the Lord. And he prays. And he asks the Lord, why? Why, what's, why are we having this famine? Why this drought? And so, and, and the Lord answers him. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 21, um, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. It says, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, This famine is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned, King David, he summoned the Gibeonites. And he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but they were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them. But Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. So David asks the Gibeonites, he says, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, they said, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and have their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. Now the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because, the oath, because of the oath that he, had made, that, that, that he had made before the Lord between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. 
But the king did take Armani, Armani and Mephibosheth. It's a different Mephibosheth. It's his uncle, the original Mephibosheth's uncle Mephibosheth, all right? So he took Armani and, and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ahiah's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with five sons of Saul's daughter, Merba, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Brazili, the Mahalowite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together and they were put to death during the first day of the harvest just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Rizpah, the mother of, of those two of them, she took sackcloth and she spread it out for herself on a rock. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rains poured down from the heavens on, their, on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ahiah's daughter, Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and he took the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, they had stolen the bodies from the public square at Bechon, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were all gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish as Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. May God richly bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. Lord, we are reminded that all scripture is God-breathed, that is good for teaching and training, for discipline and reproof. And Lord, I ask you now that you would help me to explain this, this bizarre passage. You would help us understand this so that we see why it's important to us today. And why should we even care? We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I said, you got to admit, this is a pretty bizarre passage, right? Um, there's been a drought for, it's lasted three years. Now, it's likely that even back then, those who were familiar with the scriptures, they already had a general idea of what this famine was all about. They probably were assuming that this drought had something to do with either Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus chapter 26. Now, we don't have to go there, but let me say this. According to Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, a prolonged famine was often God's way of getting people's attention of forcing his people to address some sort of gross violation, some persistent disobedience, or some covenant violation. In fact, in verse 1, it says that when David sought the face of the Lord, in, in verse 1, look what, look what it says. It says, God told him. He says, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. In other words, Saul... Saul uh, slaughtered an entire people group, the Gibeonites. It's because he did this. Now, here's something very interesting. There is nowhere else in all of Scripture that, that, that Saul's violence and Saul's, uh, that describes Saul's violence or attack about the Gibeonites. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place we have, have it mentioned. And since it's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture I think that kind of tells us about that tells us it, it tells us that 
it doesn't appear that, that anyone thought it was all that important. That it, was all, that it was significant enough for anybody to record. Instead, it had been largely ignored, forgotten, or sort of swept under the rug by nearly everyone. But clearly, it had not been forgotten by the Lord. God never forgets wrongdoing. God never forgets sin. I mean, the very nature of God's omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresent, it, it makes it impossible for him to forget. And the very nature of God's holiness and righteousness and, and integrity makes it so that he always demands restitution, that he always demands justice. So the Lord had not forgotten about what Saul, the king of Israel, and therefore the nation of Israel, had done to the Gibeonites. Now, I know if you're like my wife, you don't like history, just stay with me, Lori. I'm not going to go deep into it, all right? But, but to understand really what's going on here, we've got to go back 400 years to the book of Joshua, chapter 9, when Israel was in the process of, of conquering the promised land. When the Israelites were conquering the promised land by the direction of God, the Gibeonites, who were part of those who were supposed to be driven out, who were supposed to be, be annihilated because of their evil, because of their corruption, the Gibeonites, they dressed up in old ratty clothes. This is recorded for us in Joshua chapter 9. They dressed up in old ratty clothes, and they brought with them a bunch of crumbly and moldy food in, in, in worn-out sandals, and they acted as if, like the Israelites, that they had come from a distant land, that they didn't actually reside in, in Canaan. And, and, and they said that they had heard of, of what Yahweh had done to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. They'd heard of all the miracles, crossing the Red Sea, God's provision in the desert, and they wanted to be a part of what God was doing with Israel. And so they asked for a covenant to be made between them and Israel. And then that covenant that they made, it assured the Gibeonites that they would not be harmed, that they would be safe, that the Israelites would never try to destroy the Gibeonites. You know, I, I know many of you have been around and you've heard me talk about ancient Near Eastern covenants and covenantal ceremonies. According to ancient Near Eastern customs, when leaders swore an oath, they would then sacrifice an animal, remember? They would sacrifice an animal, they would cut the animal in two, they would set the part, pieces apart, and then they would enter into the covenant with somebody by walking between the pieces of the animal's and they would then swear what they would do. They would make a, a promise to the other people. And listen, we will never do this. And, and we, they, they make an oath. And as they're walking through the animals, what they're saying is, if we fail to do what we just said we do, may we be like these animals. May we be cut in two. May we die. May we be killed. Okay, that's how people entered into covenants with one another. And that's why covenants were so incredibly binding, even 400 years later. All right? Now, unlike the days of modern capitalism, even though the, the Gibeonites were deceptive and they lied about who they were and where they had come from, and even though the Israelites had too quickly and too impulsively entered into this covenant with them, the covenant was still binding. The leaders of Israel had sworn before Yahweh, they had sworn in Yahweh's name, they had made an oath that they would preserve the Gibeonites, that they would never lift a hand against the Gibeonites. 
But somewhere along the line, in his patriotic fervor for Israel, Saul disregarded this covenant. He disregarded this oath, and he acted as if he knew better. And he tried, and he nearly succeeded in wiping out the Gibeonites completely. And thereby, he, he and Israel violated this, this oath, this covenant. And here's another important point, swearing an oath. Entering into a covenant in the Lord's name also means that the one who does so is asking the Lord to judge between them if it's broken. They're asking the Lord to hold them accountable if they fail to keep their word. And that's what's going on in this passage today. God tell David, tells David, this is what this drought is all about. So David, he goes and he asks the Gibeonites. In verse 3, he says, what shall I do for you? How, look, look closely, he says, how shall I make atonement at one minute? How, how could I bring us back together? In, in other words, what, what do I need to do to, in order to make things right? And look closely at how they respond. It's in verse 4. They basically say, listen, this is not a matter of silver and gold. This is, this is not about money. There's, there's no amount of money in the world that can make this right. But instead, they point back to the covenant that had been established between the Gibeonites and the Israelites. That had been established so long ago. And remember, according to covenantal law, Saul and all of Israel should be cut in two. But Saul had already been killed maybe a decade or more earlier in battle. So instead, the Gibeonites, instead of asking, they asked for, for look at verse 6, for seven of Saul's male descendants to be given to them, to be killed and to have their bodies exposed before the Lord to see that, 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 that this covenant has been fulfilled in the negative way. And they did it. They, they killed those, those seven young men. They sacrificed them. And then they threw their bodies out, laying on the ground as evidence before the Lord. Listen, there is no doubt in my mind that most people today have a really hard time with the brutality of this story. It seems ridiculous that Saul's sons and grandsons should die for something that they most likely had nothing to do with. In fact, some of them may not have even been born you know, um, when Saul wiped out the Gibeonites. Um, it, it seems ridiculous that these, these sons and grandsons would be held accountable for something that their father and grandfather did. And so people will see this and they will just, will, they'll be tempted to just write it off as one more barbaric or superstitious episode in the ancient Near, of ancient Near Eastern people. But, but here's what's very important to understand. The Israelites felt the very same way we do about this, about such things. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, look what it says there. This is the law. It says in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. So, it might be reasonable for somebody to stand here today and suggest that David was guilty of violating the principle of justice laid down here in Deuteronomy. But here's what we need to understand. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 is addressing individual criminal cases. And the slaughter of the Gibeonites was not the act of one individual, but rather it was carried out under the direction of King Saul 
by King Saul's army in the name of the nation of Israel. On behalf of the nation of Israel. So, this was a national offense rather than an individual offense. Therefore, Deuteronomy 24 doesn't apply here. It, because it was a national offense rather than an individual offense, the whole nation of Israel was culpable. Everyone in Israel was culpable. And what Saul and the Israelites did to the Gibeonites was horrible. It was just absolutely horrible, but, but if we give it a little more thought, it's actually worse than what we might think. I mean, there's actually a whole other level of difficulty to, to this whole event. Remember when the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Remember when he delivered them? It wasn't because they were worthy. It wasn't because they were, were better than other people. It wasn't because they were morally superior. But rather, it was because they were the least of all nations. These are people who should know what it's like to be without, to be powerless, to have nothing. Therefore, they ought to naturally have a sense of, of tenderness towards those who now have nothing, who are on the outs, who are the least of, right? Um, the Lord established Israel, he tells us, so that the world might know him. The reason the Lord established Israel as a nation was so that his name would be proclaimed to all the earth. So he established the nation of Israel so they might represent him to all the other nations. I mean, Israel was supposed to be a beacon of salvation to the world. So what does it say when this beacon of salvation to the world swears an oath in the name of the Lord and then violates it or just dismisses it? I'll tell you what it does. It discredits the Lord's reputation. It makes the Lord's name worthless. It says that the Lord cannot be trusted or depended upon, that his name guarantees nothing. And it causes the Lord's honor and the Lord's integrity to be called into question by everyone else. So this is, incredible, this is an incredibly important thing going on here. Now we may forget something like that. We may forget something like the slaughter of the Gibeonites. But the Lord, and we may forget something about the Lord's name being defamed, but the Lord will never forget. And remember, there are only two ways to fulfill a covenant, right? One is to do what you agreed to do. And the other one is to suffer the consequences and to be cut in two, to be killed, to be destroyed yourself. That's the only two ways to fulfill the covenant. I've given the, the, the example before about my wife getting a ticket, but I was warned by those in Bible study not to do that this week. Let me just be honest. I got a ticket, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, and I think it was speeding or something, and, and it was like $300. Now, I could, so, so the law is, says to go 35, and I was probably doing 50, and, and so remember there's, Two ways to be right with the law, right? One is to obey the law, to drive 35, but if you break it, to pay the fine, to pay the penalty, right? Well, I, I had to pay, if I didn't pay the penalty, what was happening? Sometime I'm going to get pulled or I'll probably get arrested. But I paid the fine, I paid the penalty, I suffered the consequences, 
And, and, and now, even though I had broken the law, now that I paid the fine, I'm just as right with the law as if I had obeyed it in the first place, right? So there's two ways to fulfill the law. And it's the same, thing, same way with covenants. Remember, there's only two ways to fulfill a covenant. One is by obeying it, doing what you say you'll do. The other is by suffering the agreed upon consequences if you don't. So when the Gibeonites, those who were left, when they asked in verse 6 for seven of Saul's male descendants to be killed and for their bodies to be exposed in Gibeah, it's not some sort of bloody revenge, but rather it is the making of atonement. And by granting the Gibeonites' request, David is showing his commitment to covenant fidelity, his commitment to righteousness. And here's something else that's very, very important to realize here. Some very important point that I need to make is that as horrific as this whole event is, right off the bat, one of the very first things we see is an incredible mercy. Because remember, the entire nation of Israel desired to be cut in two. But instead of the entire nation dying, it's only seven who will suffer. Those seven who belonged to the house of Saul stood in as surrogates. They became, as it were, the covenant breakers who stood in place of all of Israel. And we're not told anything about the selection process. We're not told how David chose who would be sent. All we know is that he turned these seven young men over to the Gibeonites. Two of them were Saul's sons. Their mother's name was Rizpah. And then uh, five of them were Saul's grandsons. Or Yeah, five of them were his grandsons. And look at verse 9 with me. It says, David handed them over to the Gibeonites who then killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. Notice it says they, he, they killed them and then they exposed their, their bodies on a hill. It says before the Lord. This was testimony that the covenant had been fulfilled. And all set of the, seven of them fell together and they were put to death during the first days of the harvest. Just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, if this whole event is not offensive enough already, if we're not already sufficiently sad, the author forces his readers to now look at this whole pathetic scene from the perspective of Rizpah, from the perspective of one of the mothers of these two young men and aunt of the other five. In verse 10, we're told that Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. The, the Hebrew is kind of weird here. Basically, she took a, a, a sackcloth, a, 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 a sheet, a blanket, and she built a lean-to in order to provide herself some shade. She pitched a lean-to in order to provide shade from the hot summer sun. And she sat there watching her sons rot. She sat there and watched her nephews decompose under the hot sun. And she spent that time driving away the birds during the day and the wild animals at night. 
Some commentators suggest that since the barley harvest starts in April and the rains don't typically come until October, that she was probably sitting there for nearly six months. The writer clearly wants us to feel the deep sorrow and the horror of, of this event. And even still, I'm not sure we do. Now, I asked around for a couple people's opinion, and they said do it, and so I'm going to do it. Debbie Calli is the mother of seven sons. Don't get mad at me about this. She's the mother of seven sons. Can we imagine Debbie Calli, the mourning and the sorrow of, our, of this woman we love and these, these boys we love? Can you imagine the sorrow of, of Debbie having to set out for six months watching this horrible event? The writer wants us to feel this. That's what the writer wants us to feel. And we're told that David in verses 11 through 14, I don't think I have the screens, but we're told that David was really moved by, by Rizpah's devotion. And so then he sends for the remains of Saul and Jonathan who had been dead for more than a decade or so. And he takes their, their remains and then he takes the, the, the remains of these seven young men and he gives them all a proper and dignified burial. And it appears that this is what satisfied the Lord's wrath. It appears that the Lord approved and accepted the steps that have been taken in order to turn away his wrath for the breaking of this covenant. Because after that, verse 14 tells us that God answered prayer on behalf of the land. The drought came to an end. And Israel went from famine to favor. I, I, it's probably a safe bet that, that many of you have never read or never heard this story before. I mean, it wasn't included in my Sunday school lessons when I was a kid, and I never saw it in any picture books. Um, but for those of you who are committed to Bible reading, you may have seen it, but I bet you've never heard a preacher stupid enough to preach on it. You know, I, I, most of you know I preach in concert with about seven or eight or nine other pastors, and we've committed six months to, to First and Second Samuel. But the fact is, it is impossible to cover all 55 chapters in that amount of time without skipping some really important stuff. Now, our agreed-upon pas passage for this week was actually, actually chapters 20 and 21. Um, when I got to the preaching meeting on Wednesday morning, I found out I was the only one who had chosen these 14 verses. Everybody else was sticking in chapter 20. <laughs> and when I, when, I, when I shared with them what I, I was going to preach on this, they all thought I was stupid. And, and then when I kind of shared where I was going with this, they said, oh, that makes sense. They, they, they said, we like that. In fact, I think a couple of them regretted that they didn't. <laughs> Now, I'm not being critical of these guys for not preaching on this passage. I mean, I, I had to skip some other things that they felt the Lord leading them to preach on it, and that's fine. Um, um, that made sense to them, and this made sense to me. The fact is, I could have easily skipped over this passage, but I, but I just didn't want to do it. I, in fact, I decided about three weeks ago that I think I'm going to do that. And there were a couple reasons for it. 
One is that passages like this are really hard for us to digest. It's not uncommon for people to read stuff like this and then use it as a grounds for rejecting the Bible altogether. And the fact is, I'm always encouraging you, please read all the, this text that is assigned for the upcoming Sunday. And, and I would feel terrible if someone in here read this passage and then was left with questions or doubts about it or think that maybe I was skipping the hard parts or ignoring things that might cast misgivings on the history of our faith. And so I, I just didn't want to do that. The other reason is 2 Timothy 3.16. says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if all scripture is God-breathed, that means this passage is God-breathed, it's, it's, it's beneficial to us. So what is it that we're supposed to take from this passage? I mean, what are we supposed to hear and learn this morning? Why should you care? And how does this help you get through another hard week? Let me try to give you an answer. Again, it is not common for people to be disturbed by the sheer horror of this passage. And I want to suggest to you that I think that is precisely the point. That is, I already said it, that's exactly how the author wants you to feel. It is not my job every Sunday to come in here and just make you feel great. We should be disturbed by this passage because the fact is, it's terrible. There is a terrible sadness in this story. And the reason for that is because that's what sin does. It brings a terrible sadness into the world. And the only way for it to be covered is through atonement. And atonement is always bloody. It is always gory. It is always disturbing. It is always costly. And it is always painful. Remember, there are two ways to be made right. One is by obeying the stipulations of the covenant. The other is to suffer the agreed upon consequences of disobedience. I would like to argue that today's passage helps us understand the atonement that is offered to us in Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to gather here again, and we're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion. And I'm going to stand here before you, and I'm going to say, I'm going to remind you of the words of institution, where Jesus said, this is my body when I hold up the bread, which is given for you. And then I'll hold up the cup, and I'll say, this is the cup of the new covenant of Christ's blood, which was shed for you. And uh, I think there's a sense in which we have just sort of become numb to what that's really about. I think our liturgy sometimes becomes sanitized. We, we forget the gruesome and costly nature of what Jesus did for us and how he actually suffered on our behalf. 
Just a few minutes ago, we sang this song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And we sang this, and I wonder sometimes, did we really give thought to what we were singing? My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. We then sing, it is well with my soul. And we, said that, we sing this, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. See, what we're acknowledging in our worship is that atonement is real. It's painful, it's horrific, it's costly. In your bulletin this morning, you have a devotional that we encourage you to, to read and study in preparation for communion next week. And in that, it says here, what we most often forget is that we need our Savior's humanity as much as we need his deity. To stand before God unafraid, we need the holes in his hands, the side and the feet for, for these wounds prove that he died as a man to atone for men and women. There's a sense in which we forget this. In just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating, gathering together for Good Friday. We call it good because it's good for us, but it was horrific. If you stood before the cross of Jesus and you saw the bleeding wounds from his hands and his head and his feet, and if you saw his back raw from torturous beatings that he had received just prior to the crucifixion, the answer is, and if you were to ask, well, why? Why, did he, why was he so brutally treated? And the answer is, it was for you. The answer is because there's no other way. The answer is so that you could know forgiveness. The answer is for your atonement. The answer is to cover your sin. Thanks be to God for Christ who was willing, willingly became our substitute. What happened to him on the cross is what we deserve. Not just because we lie, but because we have brought shame upon the name of Christ. We can have shame upon the name of Yahweh. Thanks be to Christ, for he made the final blood atonement for his people. He made a sacrifice that was so perfect and so pure that now there is no need for any other sacrifice. It never needs to be repeated. He made this sacrifice so that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God for our own sins. And so we are left to enjoy the beauty of his love and his mercy. We're left to enjoy the salvation that came through his blood. And we are called, as Steve said in the Confession Insurance, to trust in him alone for our salvation. By faith... His righteousness becomes ours. By faith, our sin is placed upon him. He becomes our substitute. And it is costly. It is something we should be meditating upon as we prepare to come for communion next week, as we prepare to come um, to celebrate Good Friday and Easter in a couple of weeks. So let us thank God for this day. Let us thank him for sending his son to atone for us by his own blood. 
And let us worship and honor Christ for his sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, today's passage is a difficult one. But you have placed it there. And Lord, you do not shy away from these topics. You do not try to soften the blow. You do not try to to uh, downplay the seriousness of these things. May we not do so as well. May you be glorified and honored as we prepare to come to your table next week, as we prepare to, to celebrate Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.